The Movements is a left-wing history podcast. There is no such thing as neutral history, but I've done my best to be fair and used reputable historical sources. So go ahead, condemn me. It don't matter. History will absolve me. With that, I bring you The Colonization of Palestine, Part 1, From the Pale to the Settlements. About 12 years ago, I was invited to attend my first breaking of the fast of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, or as the convert mother of a dear friend once called it, the day when Judaism goes Catholic. These were the awkward years between AOL Messenger and GChat. Naturally, I misunderstood my invitation and thought I'd been invited to breakfast. A Yom Kippur breakfast at sundown? I was all in. I arrived to a starving family that proceeded to stuff me full of bagels and locks, so perhaps I was only half wrong. Within a year, I realized that Judaism was important to me and began a still-continuing relationship with the vast, beautiful, and sometimes complicated universe of Judaism. I grew up Catholic, first-generation Guatemalan in the United States. I grew up as much with WWF wrestling and The Simpsons as I did with El Chavo del Ocho and telenovelas. The first symbols I most identified with were the Quetzal and the American flag. I became politically aware around the time of the Second Palestinian Intifada, an event for which I had no frame of reference. While I had some faint understanding of what it meant to be Guatemalan in the belly of the American beast, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was something totally alien to me. I didn't really have a very complex analysis, being a teenage, progressive, lefty stereotype. My feelings were that the Palestinians deserved a state, but that terrorism was immoral. Beyond that, who knew? The thing is, I didn't really know any Palestinians except for the ones on TV. I remember hearing the name of Edward Said, but usually in dismissive tones or in general conversations about anti-colonial struggle. Starting in high school, I mostly learned about Palestinians from the Israeli point of view, whether the source was Jewish or not. While I'm pretty solidly atheist nowadays, ritual remains important to me, and I continue to feel kinship with world Jewry. Of course... Being Jewish in the U.S. means that Israel is something that pops up periodically, and it seems to come up no matter how hard you try to avoid it. It sucks. I I wish it weren't the case, but at least in the U.S. it seems to be true. It's on the news, or it's at the Seder table, or it's staring at you from your delicious bubbly soda stream that your friend just poured for you. I'm not objective. I absolutely take sides on specific issues, events, and political questions. But I have to admit, I sympathize with a good many of the players in this story. Refugees, immigrants, indigenous people, resistance from extermination, crossing borders, these are all familiar themes to me. 
They are the words that I read or heard when I first learned about the history of my ancestors, the Spanish and the Mayans. Or when I recall a story of my father being beaten near to death while traveling through Mexico on his way to the United States. I empathize with the Jews in this story, as immigrants or refugees in the countries that refuse to accept them. But I also empathize with the Palestinians, as an indigenous people who were and continue to be ethnically cleansed under an apartheid system. I'm going to ask you to empathize as much as you can, but I will not ask you to presume all parties equal. None of that milk toast false equivalency bullshit around here. The lazy person's narrative of the Middle East would characterize this as a religious conflict between Jews and Muslims dating back thousands of years. A liberal narrative would characterize this as a conflict between two people over land, each with legitimate grievances, who need to make compromises, yada yada. Now, while the first narrative is absolutely worthless, the latter narrative is dangerously simplified history. In order to understand the Israeli occupation of Palestine, which in contemporary terms is generally accepted to mean the West Bank of the Jordan River and the Gaza Strip, but historically also includes the whole of modern Israel as well, you have to understand Zionism, the Jewish national movement to establish a national home for Jews, which ultimately settled historic Palestine. In order to understand Zionism, you have to reach all the way back to the 19th century in Europe, thousands of miles away from the Middle East. Now, I don't want to paint Europe in broad brushes, but for the sake of time, let's just say that it's generally been a bad place to be a Jew. From the expulsion of the Jews from Spain and Portugal to the massacre of Jews by Crusaders to the more contemporary pogroms of Eastern Europe and Russia... The bulk of European Jewry lived invisibly, achieving social status and carving out existences where they could, while fearing the periodic outburst of anti-Jewish violence, buttressed by the development of modern European anti-Semitism. There have, of course, been areas or periods of time when Jews thrived. As Napoleon marched across Europe in the early 19th century, temporarily extending French control over vast stretches of the continent, he imposed a set of legal and civic reforms in the newly conquered territories. The lasting effects of Napoleonic-era reforms in Europe affected everything from economics to legal code to religious freedom and beyond. Even after the defeat of Napoleon, many of these changes remained in place. Among these changes were protections for Jews and other religious or ethnic minorities. Anti-Semitism hadn't been eliminated by any stretch of the imagination. But legal protections vastly improved the opportunities and expanded freedom of movement for many of Europe's Jews. Napoleon himself believed that Jews ought to be assimilated into French society and abandon Jewishness over time. And in fact, there was a current amongst the Jewish intelligentsia that believed that Enlightenment values, liberté, égalité, fraternité, the general march of modernity, or at least the Western European ideal of modernity, would lead to full equality for Europe's Jews, so long as Jews assimilated and continued their general trend towards secularization. However, 
as had been the case for Jews of previous generations. The period of relative advancement for Europe's Jews would be shattered by outbursts of massive anti-Jewish violence. This violence was particularly harsh in what was known as the Pale of Settlement, where Russian authorities implemented a series of restrictions on land ownership, freedom of movement, language, culture, and worship, creating enclaves of Jewish poverty separate from the rest of Russia. This was the status quo during the relatively calm times. After the assassination of Tsar Alexander II of Russia, rumors spread by anti-Semitic elites and capital led to the perception that the killing and subsequent political unrest was part of a Jewish plot, leading to a wave of mass violence against Jewish communities known as pogroms. Historian Benny Morris quotes the diary entries of Moshe Lieb Lielenblum, a future Zionist who lived through the terror of these pogroms. Quote, May 5th. The situation is terrible and frightening. We're virtually under siege. The courtyards are barred up, and we keep peering through the grillwork to see if the mob is coming to swoop down on us. We all sleep in our clothes and without bedding so that if we are attacked... We will immediately be able to take the small children and flee. May 7th. The rioters approached the house I am staying in. The women shrieked and wailed, hugging the children to their breasts, and didn't know where to turn. The men stood by dumbfounded. We all imagined that in a few moments, it would be all over for us. Unquote. Jews who survived the Russian pogroms were subject to tighter restrictions, and in some cases were expelled and transferred to more remote areas of the Russian Empire. While many Jews believed this wave of terror would pass, Jewish intellectuals Europe-wide were shocked into the new reality. The march towards European modernity would not necessarily protect Jews. While historical hindsight might lead to a more sober, cynical interpretation of the post-French Revolution liberalization of Europe, this was a devastating realization that forced the Jewish intelligentsia to rethink their approach towards European anti-Semitism and think fast. While the concept of a Jewish homeland was not unheard of, there existed no mass movement or strong intellectual current amongst European Jewry to advocate for such a project. Now, the idea began to gain steam, though not all agreed on the where or the how. Now, I can't stress enough how much I reject the Jews versus Muslim narrative. In short, this narrative says that there's been a conflict in Palestine going back hundreds or even thousands of years back, between Jew and Muslim, or Christendom and Islam, and the West and Islam, or pretty much anybody in Islam, yada yada. These characterizations, popular among the occasional talking head politician or religious fundamentalist, are big red flags of nonsense. While conflict certainly plays a part in the history of Palestine, that doesn't really make it special or different from other parts of the world. The modern conflict began as Zionist settlers, mostly from Europe, began to colonize a land already inhabited by different ethnic and religious groups, including local Arab and Sephardic Jews, whose identities were more tied to their land, communities, 
an Arab ethnicity than to the Ottoman state or any notion that resembles modern Palestinian identity. This isn't to say that Palestinian national identity is illegitimate or that Arab nationalism was totally unheard of. Regardless of the political consciousness of the inhabitants, Palestine was already home to people. Former Prime Minister of Israel, Golda Meir, is famous for having remarked, There is no such thing as a Palestinian. This is only true so far as one could also say that before 1948, there was no such thing as an Israeli. For their part, the Sephardim and Arab Jews would attempt to bridge a political gap between the European settlers, Ashkenazi Jews often disdainful of Arab culture, and the non-Jewish Arabs who fear displacement and dispossession at the hands of Europeans. Nevertheless, two nationalisms would emerge. The national aspiration that became Israel was in the works for more than half a century before it became reality. Like Zionism, Palestinian national identity, while a vague and underdeveloped notion until the early 20th century, emerged in response to a rapidly changing world. In 1881, the land that would become known as Israel and Palestine was a largely rural terrain populated by Muslims, Druze, Christians, and Jews, a combined population of 457,000. The majority of this population was Arab, including the semi-nomadic Bedouin. While the administrative borders weren't exactly the same as the national borders of today, those lines would be drawn up by Europeans and later in the early 20th century. Historic Palestine stretched approximately from the Latani River in the north to the Sinai and Gulf of Aqaba in the south, from the Mediterranean on the west to the Jordan River on the east. This land approximately the size of New Jersey was divided into administrative sections and was home to a diverse community of sometimes quarreling neighbors. Rural life revolved around the clans, usually varied in size, that united and governed the affairs of the families. These communities typically held land in common and were fairly unaffected by the Ottoman authorities who generally kept their presence in the urban areas. Urban life was dominated by wealthy families and those within the Ottoman bureaucracy who traded with Bedouin and villagers from the countryside. The Arab population was split among many lines, including class, family, village, and education. In addition, the Bedouin from the desert regions periodically clashed with the settled villagers. But for the most part, these divisions didn't preclude peaceful relations, nor did they prevent a common culture from developing. Israeli historian Ilan Pape writes, quote, This geopolitical space had its own major dialect and its own customs, folklore, and traditions. These similarities had all along been recognized by the people themselves, which is why the people of Nablus had made every effort to remain connected to Jerusalem. When Nablus was officially annexed in 1858 to the province of Beirut, a protest movement arose so massive that it turned into a bloodbath, in which, according to the British consul in Jerusalem, 3,000 people were killed. He was, however, known to exaggerate, so the number could have been much lower. Unquote. 
At the start of the 19th century, the majority of land was owned collectively or privately by small landowning villagers. Like in other cultures, the Palestinian farmer cultivated a diverse variety of crops based on local need. But as European interests and capitalism took root, the land became desired by wealthy Arabs and European capitalists who wanted to produce cash crops for export. As the century passed, the elite families purchased much of the land from the bulk of the population through a process of increasingly efficient taxation by the Ottoman Empire. Already influential families increased their wealth by working within the Ottoman bureaucracy, particularly as tax agents and using this wealth to purchase land from the increasingly poor and desperate peasant class known as the Felahin. As the Zionist project began towards the end of the century, land formerly owned by its inhabitants was increasingly owned by urban elites known as Effendis. These absentee landlords lived far from the land, some even residing outside of Palestine, in Damascus, Beirut, and even as far as Paris. The Felahin, once tied to their soil, were increasingly transformed into hired labor, wage labor, on the land of their ancestors. This land held in common or owned in small family plots for centuries, land that housed and fed and stayed with you from the cradle to the grave, was now owned by individuals living dozens or even thousands of miles away. At the dawn of the Zionist settlements in Palestine, Few Palestinian Arabs would have described themselves as Palestinian. Neither would many Maronite Christians in Lebanon self-identify as Lebanese. The borders and nation-states we think of now didn't exist before the 20th century, though some of them did take their names from historical geographic regions. Just as the idea of being a German-speaking person in Dusseldorf during the time of Luther, meant something completely different than it did in the 20th century. Thinking about the Arabs in Palestine as Palestinian or not Palestinian completely misses the point. The Palestinian Arabs were more likely to identify with their family or their village or any number of other factors. On a broader level, elites of any ethnicity, whether Jew or Arab, might identify as Ottoman citizens, but with rare exception, National identity did not manifest itself in a simple, straightforward manner. You were an Arab living in a village outside of Nablus in the Ottoman Empire, or a Jew living in Hebron in the Ottoman Empire, or a Bedouin living somewhere in the Negev, technically in the Ottoman Empire, but possibly with very little interaction with the Ottomans. You get the point. Nationalist movements within the Ottoman Empire at large emerged in small pockets among the elite in 1878 through 81, in the midst of an Ottoman political crisis. Particularly concentrated in the Syrian Lebanese cities, Arab nationalists began to denounce the Ottoman Empire and call for a revolt. The movement never spread out of elite circles and subsequently disappeared. At the dawn of the 20th century, Discontent with the Ottoman authorities gave rise to a new wave of nationalist fervor, encompassing both Islamic revival and secular iterations. These movements only increased their activities after the Young Turks Revolution in 1908, which introduced freedom of the press, the 1876 Constitution, and the Ottoman Parliament. 
Although some nationalists feared the opening up of political rights would quell increasing Arab discontent, the empire's increasingly anti-Arab policies would amplify the need for Arab nationalism. Morris writes, quote, A process of Turkification was set in motion. Many Arab officials were replaced by Turks and Turkish, promoted as the only language of government and the courts, was made compulsory in all schools. An anti-Arab atmosphere suffused the regime. Indeed, leading CUP members in private correspondence wrote derogatorily of the Arabs, one calling them the dogs of the Turkish nation. The pre-Zionist Jewish population, retroactively referred to by the Zionists as the Old Yeshuv or the Old Settlement, were largely submissive to the Ottoman authorities and local population. Numbering only twelve to 20,000 at the time, the vast majority were poor with a small percentage of merchants and business owners. While regarded as second-class citizens in Palestine, Jews were not subjected to the same level of repression on the scale of that found in Europe at the time. This isn't to say that anti-Jewish violence was unheard of in majority Muslim lands. As recently as 1840, seven Jewish leaders were falsely accused of murdering a monk for religious purposes, rounded up and tortured. Two died, and the search for evidence led to the imprisonment of 63 children and the destruction of several homes. The Ottoman authorities eventually released the detained, clearing the Jewish community of suspicion and reaffirming the protection status of Jews. Jews of the Middle East and North Africa were never under any illusion as to their status as second-class citizens, with periods of violence throughout the hundreds of years of history. But it's important not to mistake the history of Jews and Muslims as one of constant persecution. Benny Morris writes, quote, during the Islamic High Middle Ages, A.D. 850-1250, Judaism and the Jews had flourished and would later designate the period a golden era of Jewish history. Jews figured prominently in politics, finance, the arts and sciences in a number of Islamic kingdoms of empires. One or two served as chamberlains and ministers to kings and princes. Moses Maimonides, a physician to a sultan, emerged as one of the major philosophers of the Middle Ages. But thereafter, the condition of the Jews in the Islamic world deteriorated, along with the general stagnation of the world. Unquote. Conflicts between Sephardic or Arab Jews and Palestinian Arabs certainly occurred in Ottoman Palestine. But so did conflicts between Arabs and Bedouin. Jews and Jews, Arabs and Arabs. For the most part, Ottoman law recognized legal rights and protections of all ethnicities that accepted Ottoman rule. While Jews were second-class citizens in Palestine, their lot was generally better than that of their European and especially their Russian counterparts. And while European powers who meddled in Ottoman affairs sometimes brought with them European anti-Semitism, indigenous attitudes towards Jews were more that of low expectations. While Tsarist Russia cooked up forgeries such as the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, a supposed blueprint for the Jewish takeover of the world's governments and economies via the banking sector, Jewish stereotypes in Palestine were that of a weak, inferior people, not worth much mind. The first Zionist settlers from Europe were few in number and short on cash. Adopting an approach that became known as Practical Zionism, they raised what money they could in Europe and North America, 
and settled small numbers on land purchased Dunham by Dunham. This first Aaliyah, lasting two decades from 1881 to 1903, attempted to settle Palestine alongside established Arab villages, often employing Arab labor. Many of these twenty to 30,000 settlers eventually abandoned Palestine, not so much in response to an inherent Arab hostility, but rather as a result of economic hardship. Back in Europe, a wave of anti-Semitic attitudes and acts were triggered in the heart of alleged liberal democracy and Enlightenment values. In 1894, French artillery officer Alfred Dreyfus, a Jew, was convicted wrongfully of treason and served five years imprisoned on Devil's Island. The period marked a spread of anti-Semitic attitudes from the aristocratic class to the general population. Theodore Herzl, Jewish journalist born to an aristocratic assimilated Budapest family, lacking experience with the plight of Eastern European Jewry and lacking Yiddish or Hebrew language skills, was shocked into action by the Dreyfus Affair. In 1896, Herzl published Der Judenstaat, or The Jewish State. In it, he laid out the problem of the Jewish question and proposed a solution. If assimilation into French society couldn't protect Jews, with France being what he believed to be the forefront of modern liberal values, where could Jews be safe anywhere in the world? Therefore, Jews needed a home of their own. Moreover, Herzl believed that settlement in Palestine would transform the immigrants into, quote, new Jews. Morris writes, quote, Respect was to be attained by the refashioning of the Jew into something akin to a Gentile, aggressive, assertive, straight-backed. Muscular Judaism, in the phrase coined by Max Nordau, later Herzl's deputy at the head of the Zionist movement, was seen as both a means and a goal. Jews, with traditionally well-developed mental muscles but physically short and weak, were now also to develop their bodies. Jewish communities across Central and Eastern Europe began to invest resources in physical culture. In 1900 in Berlin, a group of Jews set up a sports association called Bar Kokhba after the Judean leader of the Second Revolt against Rome in 132-135 A.D. The theme of the assertive new Jew was to reverberate throughout Zionist literature and around the turn of the century, and would affect the behavior of the colonists who reached the Promised Land. Unquote. Herzl's ideas were not immediately accepted by the Zionist movement at large, who had already spent over a decade fundraising and establishing small numbers of communities in Palestine. Herzl appealed to wealthy British and French Jews with limited success. Though some of these families were already involved in funding a number of settlements, they feared that Herzl's approach would be counterproductive. Opposed to the Dunham-by-Dunham Dunham approach, Herzl sought political alliances with regional powers, in particular the Ottomans, in order to facilitate mass immigration and eventually establish an official Jewish state. Zionist organizations and their wealthy benefactors feared that such a bold approach would antagonize the Ottoman authorities as well as the local population. Despite initial resistance from Western European Zionist circles, Herzl found an audience amongst Eastern European Jewry and eventually won the political battle, uniting the two currents at the First Zionist Congress in 1897, while adopting the phrase Jewish Home 
rather than Jewish state. The Zionist Congress adopted the Herzl strategy of seeking a national charter from a major world power. Now this is the part of the story where we begin to wade into the muck. So you're probably wondering, hey, we're, we're focusing heavily on European Jewry and Palestine, but we've barely talked about the people in Palestine. Well, that's more or less how the public debates in Europe were going. The narrative of a land without a people or a people without a land was generally accepted by the rank and file of the Zionist movement and their supporters, though Zionist leaders, European diplomats and people living in Ottoman Palestine, they were quite aware that this land, however difficult to cultivate and relatively undeveloped in some parts, was certainly populated. Herzl himself avoided discussion of transfer publicly. The Zionist line claimed that the influx of Jews would bring economic development, as the educated Jews brought European science and technical know-how, while investment would provide jobs and prosperity to the Arab neighbors within. Consider this line of reasoning the next time neighborhood development capital tries to revitalize working-class communities of black and brown folk. Is that a little on the nose? Privately, Herzl acknowledged that the establishment of a Jewish state would require transfer of a majority of the local population, particularly the poor. Benny Morris writes, quote, In his 1901 draft charter for a Jewish Ottoman land corporation, Herzl proposed that the state have authority to move native populations from one place to another. But he never spoke openly of the need to transfer Palestine's Arabs to pave the way for Zionism. And as a good liberal, he envisioned the propertied Arabs staying and supporting the Jewish state, living under a regime of exemplary tolerance. Unquote. Even as early as the 1880s, Zionist leaders were aware and debating what would become known as the Arab question. Within months of arrival in Palestine, Eliezer ben Yehuda, considered the father of modern Hebrew, wrote in aggressive terms how the settlers would seize control of Palestine. From a July 1882 letter to Peretz Molenskin, quote, The thing we must do now is to become as strong as we can, to conquer the country covertly, quietly. We will not set up committees so that the Arabs will know what we are after. We shall act like silent spies, and we shall buy, buy, buy. The arrival of political Zionism in the late 1890s with its public emphasis on the new Jew would begin to shift settlers towards a more clandestinely zero-sum approach towards the establishment of a Jewish home. Conquest of labor increasingly becoming a common concept amongst the Jewish settlers explicitly reserved all employment solely for Jews, leaving Arabs to seek their livelihood elsewhere far from the settlements. While early Jewish settlers lived and worked in close contact with Arabs, whether they wanted to or not, this generation sought more aggressively to establish homogeneity. While the idea of a conquest of labor was not unknown amongst early settlers of the first Aliyah, it was largely abandoned out of necessity as early settlers depended on their Arab neighbors enjoying both good and bad relations throughout Palestine. 
The resurgence of conquest of labor in the 1890s meant that tenant farmers, the Felahin, who generations earlier had owned the same land before being coerced into selling to the wealthy Effendis, were now unemployed and forced to watch as Jewish settlers replaced them. Zionist attitudes towards the indigenous population was by no means monolithic. Like any political movement, there were factions and currents and infighting. Yitzhak Epstein, both a Jew and a Palestinian. Yitzhak Epstein, both a Palestinian Jew and a Zionist, rejected the zero-sum mentality behind establishing Jewish hegemony in Palestine. Benny Morris writes, quote, For the time being, he said, there was no Arab movement in the national or political sense in Palestine, but, he implied, one might develop in the not-so-distant future. Quoting Epstein, among the difficult questions connected to the idea of the renaissance of our people on its soil, there is one which is equal to all others. The question of our relation with the Arabs. We have forgotten one small matter. There is in our beloved land an entire nation which has occupied it for hundreds of years and has never thought to leave it. Morris continues. Epstein took the Zionists severely to task for purchasing land from Effendis and then pushing out the poor tenants. And he asserted, provocatively, that Palestine in fact belonged to both people. He returns to quoting Epstein. We are making a great psychological error with regards to a great assertive and jealous people. While we feel a deep love for the land of our forefathers, we forget the nation who lives in it today has a sensitive heart and a loving soul. The Arab, like every man, is tied to his native land with strong bonds. Unquote. The Arab elites and absentee landlords, for their part, were largely uninterested in early Zionist settler motivations, whether they were publicly known or just suspected. Immigration standards were lax and easily bypassed via bribery. The majority of settlers in the three decades before the Ottoman collapse were undocumented immigrants, at least at the onset. As nearly 20,000 mostly Eastern European Jews immigrated to Palestine in the decade before World War I, tensions and incidents of violence between settlers and Fellahin increased. Palestinian Arabs began to look to immigration as a threat to their very livelihoods, as more Palestinians were experiencing a second wave of dispossession. The lands that were once theirs during the prior century earlier were now being sold to Zionists who discriminated against non-Jews, paying them less or not employing them at all. For their part, the Jewish immigrants to Palestine were part of a larger max exodus of refugees from the deteriorating situation in the Russian Empire. The vast majority of Jews fled to the United States, which saw nearly 1.5 million Jews pass through Ellis Island during the years 1907 and 1914. While the percentage of Jews immigrating to Palestine was comparatively minuscule, this generation would radically change the future of Palestine. These refugees, fleeing the harsh and often deadly anti-Semitism of Eastern Europe, arrived in Palestine to the welcome of Zionist settlers and increasingly hostile Palestinian Arab peasants. Future Prime Minister of Israel, David Ben-Gurion, who arrived in Palestine in 1906, put it this way. Speaking of negative attitudes towards increasing numbers of Jews, 
Morris quotes Ben-Gurion on the subject of hatred. Quote, Originates with the Arab workers in Jewish settlements. Like any worker, the Arab worker detests his taskmaster and exploiter. But because this class conflict overlaps a national difference between farmers and workers, this national hatred takes a national form. Indeed, the national overwhelms the class aspect of the conflict in the minds of the Arab masses and inflames an intense hatred towards the Jews. Unquote. Meanwhile, developments in the Ottoman Empire would contribute to the concurrent development of a Palestinian identity and Arabism at large. The years between the Young Turks Revolution in 1908 and the start of World War I saw an opening of press freedoms and a flourishing Arabic press. Civil society developed as well, with women's clubs, literacy groups, and charities formed by women from urban and affluent families, both Christian and Muslim. These women would form some of the earliest organized anti-Zionist activities, utilizing petition and public protest. Mary Elizabeth King writes, quote, Organizations for and run by women had existed since the Ottoman period, as had limited schooling for girls. The first women's organizations included societies associated with different churches, such as the Orthodox Ladies' Society, founded in 1910 in Jaffa. In 1911, the Christian Public Charity Society for Ladies was established in Haifa, and by 1919, the Arab Ladies' Associated was formed in Jerusalem. While the majority of such organizations focused on charitable efforts, a growing number increasingly turned to the political goals connected to the Palestinian national cause. Unquote. In the second decade of the 20th century, Zionism became an increasing concern for Palestinian Arabs of all classes. Arab public opinion was generally anti-Zionist, though the newspapers of this era do feature some sympathetic or even pro-Zionist opinion. Rashid Khalidi, in an analysis of 22 Arabic-language newspapers located within or near Palestine during this period, describes the difference of opinions featured in the pages of Al-Mukatam. He writes, quote, Beginning in 1911, Al-Mukatam developed into a forum for heated dialogue between several of its pro-Zionist contributors and a number of prominent Arab writers and political figures, such as Rafiq al-Azam and Saqib Arslan. It also received articles from Dr. Shibli Shimail and Isa al-Isa, co-editor of Philistine, supporting the opponents of Zionism in this ongoing controversy. Ironically, some of the strongest and most coherent arguments against Zionism in the pre-World War I period can be found in the pages of Al-Mukatam from 1911 until 1914. In the context of these varied responses to the claims made by Malul and other Zionist sympathizers in their own articles in the paper, these were claims that were to be heard for many years. Zionism, these writers asserted, was good for Palestine, would bring in much needed capital, and would provide employment for the indigenous population, and had no ulterior political aspirations to rule over the country. Among the most notable responses to these claims is an article by Shakib Arsland in January 1912 in which he pours scorn on Malul's claim in an earlier article that ruin will befall Palestine if Zionist colonization is halted. The Zionists, he went on, 
are benefiting from the country far more than the country was benefiting from their presence. And Malul is guilty of gross exaggeration when he describes the blessings of Zionism for Palestine. An article in 1914 by Muhammad Abd al-Rahman al-Alami alluded to another side of the problem, pointing out that the Zionists are able to buy up land in Palestine only because of the dereliction of its duty by the local government, which he emphasized was made of rich men willing to sacrifice the whole of Palestine for their own personal benefit. A third article by the noted writer Shibli Shimail a few days later emphatically stressed that the Zionists were outsiders and aliens, engaged in stealing the land from its rightful owners. He added that, while opposing Zionism, the Arabs must learn from it, competing with it in developing the land and in cultural work. Other articles by Al-Alami and Isa al-Isa in May 1914 show that at least the Palestinian opponents of Zionism were well acquainted with the objectives of the Zionist movement as defined by its leaders, and were not taken in by the honeyed word of Malul and others regarding the benign nature of Zionist political objectives in Palestine. Thus, al-Alami cited the resolutions of the Basel Congress of the movement, as well as a declaration by Max Nordau, a close collaborator of Herzl, regarding the undesirability of integration with the local population of Palestine, but also an inflammatory statement by Russian Zionist leader Menachem Usishkin in direct contradiction to the conciliatory tone found in articles by Zionist writers in Al-Mukatam, unquote. While the major currents of Zionism would come to embrace transfer and Jewish exclusive labor practices, a small but significant number of dissidents called for an alternative to displacement. Socialists in particular divided over the question of Zionism, with many recognizing the inherent contradiction between socialist internationalism and Zionism as inherently nationalist philosophy. The Jewish Labor Bund, a major socialist party of Eastern Europe, voted to reject Zionism at the beginning of the century, resulting in a breakaway faction that became known as Polae Zion. Along with Hapoel Hatzir, these two new socialist parties declared solidarity with the worldwide working class while favoring the exclusion of Arabs from the Jewish economy. This contradiction was not lost on future Israeli president Yitzhak Ben-Zvi, who would write in 1914, quote, It should have been the case that the Jewish bourgeoisie would be chauvinistic and would demand only Jewish labor. We, the socialists, tending towards internationalism, should have demanded that the workers be employed without regard to national and religious differences. In reality, we see exactly the opposite. Unquote. Even earlier, in 1886, Ilya Rubanovich condemned Zionism without subtlety. Quote, what is to be done with the Arabs? Would the Jews expect to be strangers among the Arabs, or would they want to make the Arabs strangers amongst themselves? The Arabs have exactly the same historical right, and it will be unfortunate for you if, Taking your stand under the protection of international plunderers, using the underhand dealings and intrigue of a corrupt diplomacy, you make the peaceful Arabs defend their right. 
They will answer tears with blood and bury your diplomatic documents in the ashes of your own homes. Unquote. Rubanovich's critique is startlingly contemporary in its analysis, predating Herzlian Zionism and recognizing the necessity of imperial power in facilitating the colonization of Palestine and the creation of objective conditions ripe for bloody conflict. Anti-Zionism would remain an important political position among revolutionary socialist Jews, while Zionist Jews would eventually trend towards nationalism and liberalism. Among the newly politicized Sephardic and Arab Jews, non-exclusionary and indigenous forms of Zionism developed. These political positions rejected transfer and conquest of labor. Neither did the political organization see themselves as strictly Jewish or strictly Arab. Abigail Jacobson and Moshe Naor write, quote, The role of Sephardi and Oriental Jews as mediators and the doubts expressed about their loyalty to the Zionist movement are interrelated. These doubts were felt not only by Zionist leaders and political activists, but also by some prominent Palestinian national leaders. Starting in the last years of Ottoman rule, the latter often distinguished between the new Ashkenazi immigrants who kept their foreign citizenship instead of adopting Ottoman citizenship and who did not speak Arabic, and the local Jews, including the Oriental Jews who were sometimes referred to as Arab Jews. This distinction was shared by many local Jews. It was based on the notion that Palestine was a shared homeland for its indigenous people, Jews and Arabs alike and the fact that Palestinian Arabs viewed the Ashkenazi Zionists, mainly the new Russian immigrants, as foreigners. Yosef Eliyahu Shalush, a Sephardic Jew born in Jaffa and future founder of Tel Aviv, would simultaneously lament the increased anti-Jewish sentiment coming from his non-Jewish brethren and the demands from Ashkenazi Jews that the indigenous Jewish population devote themselves entirely to the European nationalist project. Quote, I am tired of those who prioritize their Zionism over their Judaism, in contrast to us locals who see nationalism within Judaism. Unquote. Shalush represented a position that stressed Judaism as a living nation unto itself, a continuing tradition without interruption that should unite Jews, but also look to Arabs, both Jews and non-Jews, as brothers and sisters. In response, Zionist leaders condemned Shalush and others with similar views accusing him of disloyalty. Shalush recalled in his memoirs, quote, When I heard this, I almost lost my mind. I could not forgive this insult to me and my friend, the slander leveled against us and against the Sephardim in general to besmirch our name. I was born in Zion. I have no other homeland. Those who slander me were born and raised in exile. Unquote. A letter from Eliyahu Berlin to Josef Sprinzak expressed Sephardic frustration with the Zionist movement. Quote, there is considerable foment amongst the Sephardim, who now feel themselves to be more offended than ever by their exclusion from the National Council. It has even gotten to the point that they have heard veiled threats that some of them may ally themselves with the Arabs, with the Mufti, and so forth. There are also those who claim that, were it not for Zionism, they would be living on good terms with the Arabs, as had been the case until now. Unquote. 
As Palestinian national identity began to develop amongst the Fellahin, or peasant classes, Arab national identity developed amongst the Effendi, or the Arab elite, and an emerging Jewish national identity continued to develop amongst the Zionist settlers, eventually creating the seeds for a proto-state which would become known as the Yeshuv. Despite attempts at mediation by Arab Jews, incidents of conflict between settlers and non-Jewish indigenous populations increased. Quarrels developed over the vague and sometimes loosely defined borders. Geographical characteristics such as ditches and plant growth defined borders of property, leading to incidents of vandalism or alteration of landmarkings. Years later, Palestinian civil rights attorney Raja Shehade would describe the conflict between the language of the Fellahin versus the language of the law. As Palestinian villagers presented old certificates of ownership, defining borders in the words of hill farmers, Israeli courts would take advantage of these legally ambiguous terms to rule in favor of the land seizures. Nevertheless, the forces of history and the decision of the Zionist movement to colonize Palestine set in motion a political project that would inevitably lead to a massive refugee crisis, regular brutal wars, and the establishment of a settler colonial state in Palestine. In the words of Benny Morris, quote, The major cause and tension and violence throughout the period 1882 and 1914 was not accidents, misunderstandings, or the attitudes and behaviors of either side, but objective historical conditions, and the conflicting interests and goals of the two populations. The Arabs sought instinctively to retain the Arab and Muslim character of the region and to maintain their position as its rightful inhabitants. The Zionists sought radically to change the status quo, buy as much land as possible, settle on it, and eventually turn an Arab-populated country into a Jewish homeland. Unquote. As more Jewish refugees and immigrants came into Palestine, more Arabs found themselves destitute and driven off their land. The development of the two nationalisms would continue, and the stakes raised with the coming Great War, which would bring down the Ottoman Empire and usher in the era of the British Mandate of Palestine. The Movements is a left-wing history podcast. Music by Ahmad Kabur and Taufik Ziad and Daniel Khan and Pesoy Korolenko. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Support the show at paypal.me slash movementspod. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at movementspod. Oh, you foolish little Zionists With your utopian mentality You'd better go down to the factory And learn the workers' reality You'd better go down to the factory And learn the workers' reality You want to take us to Jerusalem So we can die as a nation We'd rather stay in the diaspora And fight for our liberation We'd rather stay in the diaspora for all and wait for our little